Thank you everyone for being with us for our second session of the day. This is our final um, day of the Forum Talks program and really we've had some interesting and really engaging conversations up until this point and this is no exception. It's really great to see so many of you here as well to interact and engage with this discussion. I'm really pleased to welcome Hans Ulrich Obrist as well as Emmanuel Iduma. Um, who will be in conversation, really looking at, and I'm sure this will go broader, but um, looking at reactivating historical material through writing and conversation as a critical, poetic, or speculative inquiry. Um, just a brief introduction of both our speakers. Emmanuel Iduma is the author of the novel The Sound of Things to Come, um, first published as Farad in Nigeria, and co-editor of Gambit, New Africa Writing. He holds an MFA in art criticism and writing from the School of Visual Arts New York, where he's also a faculty member. He has contributed essays on art and photography to a number of journals, magazines, and ex exhibition catalogs. He co-curated the Nigerian Pavilion at the 27 Venice Biennale. He is the editor of Saraba Magazine, which he co-founded. A Stranger's Pose, his book of travel stories, will be published next year. Hans Ulrich Oberst is the artistic director of the Serpentine Galleries London and co-founder of 89 Plus. Since his first show, World Soup, The Kitchen Show in 1991, he has curated more than 300 exhibitions. His recent publications include Conversations in Mexico, Ways of Curating the Age of Earthquakes with Douglas Copeland and Shumon Bassar, and Lives of the Artists, Lives of the Architects. Oberis has lectured internationally at academic art institutions and is, is a contributing editor to the magazine's Art Forum, another magazine, um, and a regular contributor to, to Moose and Kaleidoscope. And he writes columns for Das Magazine and Weltkunst. In 2011, he received the CCS Bard Award for Curatorial Excellence. And in 2015, he was awarded the International Folkwang Prize for his commitment to the arts. Um, just a few housekeeping rules. Um, if you could please um, have your phones on silent as well. If you need to leave, please do it as quietly as possible. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoy. Hello. <laughs> um, it's wonderful to be in conversation with Hans um, Orich, and we've sort of, as he was saying earlier, been in touch for I think three or four years now, um, and um, the magical Koyo. Um, <laughs> brought us together. Um, and I'm going to go first because you said it's um, alphabetical. My name is um, the first on the... <laughs> um, and um, it's going to be kind of a conversation that is going to travel through all kinds of ideas and images and um, ways of really thinking about how we could, you know, activate historical material but also work... Um, through Instagram, for instance, and think about writers and um, thinkers and philosophers that has um, informed um, both our practices, both of our practices. And um, I'm going to go first um, um, to talk about um, a project on Instagram, um, which has sort of um, kind of evolved in the last five, six months, and and how I'm using this project to think about where my work is going and how I could work with history, and, um, but pr pr um, prominently the archive. So there are about 48 posts on my Instagram feed with images downloaded from 
the Flickr page of the National Archives of the UK, the International Mission Photography Archive, and from Romano Cagnoni's coverage of the Biafra War. All the images I chose were taken in Nigeria. Uh, in each post, I have paired the images with lines of text. And so the idea for me was this notion that not two made into one, but two made into three. The correspondence between images and text produces, in my thinking, a thought presence. What is formed in the interaction between the image, my text, and your engagement? When you swipe left or when the tip of your index finger taps an icon to produce a reddish glow. Two made into three. Um, and by now, by the time I'm doing this work, much scholarship exists on colonial era photographs. And my work um, in this series was, not a, was to find complementary, perhaps alternative vibrations, um, to consider these strangers in the archive my kin. I am writing into their lives, uh, lives that enter mine, which is very audacious. If I profile my memories and encounters, my losses and anxieties, it is not to explain away identities I know nothing about, but to see instead how the personal becomes the personable. And as we know, being in London, the empire is relentless, and so much, and, uh, and so much resistance to it. Neither statement is any truer today than in 1914, when Nigeria was um, amalgamated into, two, into one entity. But what has changed in my thinking is the language in which we express our fortitude and um, with which we console each other. And finally, um, as an introduction, I make a distinction between history as events and history as consciousness. In history as events, time is linear and facts are sacred. In history as consciousness, time erupts and is disrupted and facts are only the first version of truths. The distinctions are broad but very promising. So um, for the next, I think, about eight minutes, if Hans would oblige me. Um, I'm going to read um, a few, just show you some images um, not necessarily on Instagram, and read some of the captions that I um, put up on Instagram. But in my thinking, this is sort of unfolding into a book. <laughs> um, and as you know, it's, if you're writing a book, it, I mean, you never really know how that, that's going to happen. Um, and so I'm going to just read some of these captions, and, um, and then Hans would introduce his thinking, and we can sort of have a conversation after that. As strangers, we are bound to a collective fate. The world has a storehouse for all the names and gestures we share. Occasionally, it outreaches its bounds. Your past replaced as my future, my present backdated until yours arrives. Time is shuffled. After a recent talk I gave, two women came to me, both showed me photographs on their phones. The first photograph was of twin girls who rarely dressed in the same clothes their mother said or cut their hair in the same way as the photo showed. But in that photograph, their clothes were alike. Twins are the quintessential expression of intimate strangers, I said in my talk. I disagreed with you, the first woman, mother of twins, said. Then I thought it over and began to agree. 
provisionally at first until I became utterly convinced. The second photograph was of a young man my age, perhaps older, whose mother showing me his photograph was certainly looked alike. He was handsomer than I imagined myself looking, yet she insisted on our likeness, even in the way you move your hands, your smile, and he's a poet you see, like you. You speak the same way. I've thought often of these women, their children, who I become in the light of others. All those to whom I entrust the meaning of my life, its promise, its secret ambitions, and unnameable longings, they are contraband. I smuggle them into my heart, my hands folded in prayer. Stay with me. There is below every name the underbelly of a life. If it were possible, I would ask for people and names to go nameless until the dusk of their lives. Humans at the outset of their last breaths, plants crumpled by air and feet just before they fail to rise again, a beast in the final winds and grasp of pain. That way names can achieve their real intents to sum and give character to a life. I see during the course of my travels a vast number of people whose names I will never know, but whose lives are befittingly characterized by their poise and pose. The man who stands with an arm resting on a wall, I can estimate with what commitment he walks. His hands touch the membrane of the wall as a herdsman touches the skin of a favorite sheep. The concrete is caressed, the mud is fingered. There is even desire in the reach of his hands. He loves all houses as he loves his own skin. To know his birth name, Ibrahim, Joe, Mustafa, Liu, Ikemefuna, or Garik, becomes less interesting than to comprehend than to comprehend the meaning his hands convey. It occurs to me that all struggle to be named, to portray an identity in spite of, can be typified in the way a, a body is pictured. Let the incline of an elbow remind us of a gangly man near exhausted by years of itinerancy. Let graying mustache remind us of commensurate experience, a master embodying his mastery. And let bare feet, a furrowed forehead, and a doorway indicate a man mildly irritated by having to pause mid-activity to pose for a photograph. And just a few more. Lovers know this, but need often to be reminded no desire is misplaced. It might take years to fathom, even half a century. As a river knows itself a tributary, so desire travels, surrendering, undulating. Suppose a visage seen in full is repository for truth so personal, common language falters in an attempt to describe. Not seen in full, what special intelligence is obscured? What hint of peculiar revelation inaccessible? Two women pictured in a similar manner are likely for the photographer ethnographic proof of how female canary native types distinguish themselves from their dequa neighbors, for instance. But for me, simply and resolutely, I wonder about individual destiny. 
Which woman was hassled by her husband to pose for the photograph so he might enter into favor with the local chief? Which, seeing her friend cradle the photograph, sought to avenge her envy by seizing what seemed the final opportunity? What was her mood that afternoon? What beauty did she think could be preserved, even for a second? What neglect, what vein of longing, what crooked finger of tenderness, what neat's favorite dress, what bracelet weathered by irreplaceable affection? However damnable the presumptions of the photographer, one must seek the flash of meaning that redeems the image from the onerous past, the pinprick of light that saves a room from utter darkness. I think I'm going to pause here. Um, should I read more? I think so, yeah. Okay. It's wonderful. I think we want to hear more, no? Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you for putting me into trouble. Um, <laughs> so I think I'll just read um, maybe two more. I don't know, depending. <laughs> a woman I know, when she was about 10 or a little older, was accused of being possessed by the devil. She does not remember on what occasion her actions as a precocious, headstrong child gave her off, but there is a moment in her memory when she's kneeling and circled by a praying group from our childhood Presbyterian church. After a session of prayers, she's asked to recant her allegiance to Satan. In practice, no recantation is complete without naming one's companions. She made up identities of her cohorts, accusing schoolmates she disliked or recalcitrant girls in church. You know I don't believe in those things, she said. Once, her mother asked if she had a hand in the end of a preacher's marriage, a man who visited her family regularly. She nodded in agreement. No other response had been envisaged. Once also, a little past midnight, as a little girl, a visiting woman forcefully woke her. The visitor struck her chest repeatedly. Your heart is very hard. She was unsure if by striking her chest, the woman hoped to make her spirit softer, less involved with the devil. What she recalls was saying nothing to her parents about that night, telling no one all these years except me, since I solicit for her past. At the end of her recollection, she says, I hope you won't put my name in what you're writing. I will let her anonymity stand. Fathers and sons, I presume, pictured in mid-movement, the perform a dance, holding, being held, circling, making rhythm with the feet. If it is a dance, then notice a trace of happiness in the incline of their bodies. Anything reduced to a trace is momentary. Anything momentary might recall, such as the glint in the eye of a man seeing a son for the first time, the same glint when the boy comes home with knees scraped against concrete while he played. On both occasions, the man picks up his son, consoling with a praise name. And finally, I think this is my favorite. Um, <laughs> Let me take shade under you, says one lover to another. It is a metaphor that refers unambiguously to trees. If a tree supplies human lovers with language for com comfort, it is precisely because of scale. How does a tree manage to maintain its balance in the air? Drendologists tell us that trees, as they evolve into upright plants, 
face the problem of gravity. The aerial parts of the tree are pulled downward by wind and rain, so the tree, if it must survive, has to orient itself in relation to gravity. While new shoots grow up, new roots grow down. This geotropic response is a generalization. Sometimes shoots grow at an angle or vertically, and in trees with millions of roots, very few incline downwards. And yet, at the outset of, it, of its life, a tree's immediate concern is to solve its gravity problem, reaching at once for height and depth. I remember sitting beside her in the Lagos restaurant in the days we still believed we would get married. I avoided her eyes, although in fact, she turned away from the table to ensure she didn't look at me. Lovers of our kind, those who, spent, who had spent a year apart in long-distance affairs are dissatisfied when they momentarily reunite. They want each other's endless devotion, but time is too short. The analogy is tricky, but consider a love affair as a tree solving its gravity problem, how we might grow upwards with continued affection for each other, at the same time remain rooted, although our lives are compromised by the intimate details we have of each other's flaws. The push of affection, the pull of knowledge, to stay in love, we orient ourselves in relation to gravity. Thank you. Yeah, we can listen to more later on. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's wonderful. Um, yes, indeed, as um, actually you mentioned, uh, very, very grateful to Koyo for bringing us here together because we tried to meet for so many years. and. I've been in touch by email and met briefly. And so, as always, Koyo makes these amazing junctions. Uh, I remember, actually, the very first year uh, when uh, I came here in this very space uh, to give a talk. It was uh, Koyo's idea to bring us together with Otto Bong-Nekanga. It was the beginning of an amazing series of collaboration with then 11 rooms and 12 rooms and so on. So it's just uh, many, many thanks to Koyo. We should a big applause for her, no? Yeah. yeah. And we had a conversation, uh, actually, the day before yesterday. It was our first longer conversation preparing this talk with Emmanuel. And we talked about many different things, John Berger, Pedro Cole. So these are things we're going to address in, you know, in the conversation. I was thinking um, to talk also about my Instagram, because we both somehow use Instagram in a slightly mm -hmm. unusual way. Uh, but also talk about archives, because, of course, I think that's the connection between our two practices is somehow uh, a connection to archive, a connection also to, um, to memory. I suppose we live in an age of more and more information, but it's not because we have more information that we also have more memory. It might very well be that actually uh, amnesia is somewhere at the core of this digital age. And I think also ways of listening. Mm -hmm. I think that's another thing which I think is uh, maybe uh, connected, sort of archives as ways of uh, listening. So I wanted to begin with uh, Edouard Lisson, because for me he's the writer, the toolbox, uh, for, which I kind of basically use every day. Whenever I, every day when I wake up, like in the morning, I read 15 minutes of Edouard Lisson. For me, it's, uh, it's been a ritual ever since I became friends with him uh, in the 90s when I lived in Paris. I met him, you know, when I was uh, just starting to be a curator. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I've read, you know, all his writings and keep returning to, to his writings. And we recently did an exhibition with uh, Assad Raza actually in, um, in Brussels, where we tried to somehow see how one could actually bring an archive alive, how one could spatially, you know, bring an archive alive as an exhibition. Maybe a few words about Glissant, why I think 
he is so important. Born in 1928 and died in Paris actually a few years ago. Um, he, uh, ever since his beginnings, actually uh, emphasized, you know, notions like the creolization of the world. As you can see here on this drawing, he once uh, uh, sent me in a letter, you know, the importance of the uh, archipelago. So the, the history and the landscapes of the Antilles form very much the, the point of departure of uh, Glissant's uh, way of thinking. The first issue that preoccupied him was national identity in view of the colonial past. So he very much you know, looked at these archives. And uh, it's also the theme of his first novel, La Lézarde, which in English uh, was translated as The Ripening, which he considered the blend of languages and cultures as a you know, decisive characteristic of the Antillean you know, identity. And of course, he kept drawing uh, and writing about the you know, Antillean archipelago. His native Creole was formed from a combination of the languages of the French colonial rulers and the African slaves. It contains elements of both, but is itself something independent and unexpectedly totally new. On the basis of those insights, he later observed that there are similar cultural fusions all over the world. In the 80s, a period in which a theory around globalization was developing, uh, an essay collection such as Le Discours Antillais, the Caribbean Discourse, which are selected essays from 89 and 92, Glissant expanded on the concept of creolization, applying it to the worldwide process of continual fusion. To quote him here, creolization is a process which never stops. Creolization is a process which never stops. So many of my exhibitions, you know, if it's Cities on the Move, which we did with Wuhan Ru, or Do It, um, uh, an exhibition which keeps, you know, evolving, have been very, very inspired by this idea that they actually are a, a global dialogue, that they somehow you know, try to further a global dialogue, but in a non-homogenizing kind of way. Because Glissant very early on uh, understood that uh, we, of course, live in an extreme period of globalization. And this extreme period of globalization will lead to the disappearance of many things, to the extinction even, as he said, the extinction uh, not only of life forms, but the extinction also of you know, cultural phenomena. But he understood very early on that the counter-reaction against this globalization could even be worse and could lead to new forms of lack of tolerance, mm -hmm. to new forms of racism, to new forms of oppression, et cetera, et cetera. So he said for this very reason, um, he coined in a way this notion of mondialité. And mondialité would be a, a way uh, how one could actually engage in a global dialogue um, exactly as he describes it for this archipelago. And I'm going to read here another quote. The American archipelagos are extremely important because it was in these islands that the idea of creolization, that is the blend of cultures, was most brilliantly fulfilled. Continents reject mixings, whereas archipelic thought makes it possible to say that neither each person's identity nor the collective identity are fixed and established once and for all. I can change through exchange with the other without losing or diluting my sense of self. And it's archipelic thought that teaches us that. And that seems very much, you know, an urgent message for the current moment. I mean, that's the incredible thing. We were speaking with Emmanuel the other day, you know, looking at Glissant, you can pick out almost every sentence and it just is so relevant for what, you know, is happening in the world right now. What is interesting is that Glissant also actually, and that leads us to this exhibition we did with uh, my friend Assad Raza. We curated it uh, for the Villa Ampin in, uh, in, in, in Brussels. Uh, that Glissant also wanted to actually build an art institution. So he was very much 
as a um, writer and philosopher and poet, interested in actually founding institutes. So in 67, he founded the Institute Martinique d'Etude, which is a school that influenced an entire epoch of Martinique. So he became, you know, the founder of a school uh, and, and, and an educator. At the same time, he, he, he was very convinced that Martinique needed a museum. So he uh, talked to all his artist friends and developed uh, a Musée du Monde, the Museum of All World, which very unfortunately, because of political obstacles, you know, remained unrealized. And he did so with, you know, lots of his friends like Roberto Mata and Wilfredo Lam. And again, the archipelago served as a model for this institution. He said, I imagine a museum as an archipelago. It's not a continent, but an archipelago. So it would have housed not a synthesis, because if a museum houses a synthesis of culture, the danger is that it serves to standardize, and that's what we see in many big museums. But it actually was about a network of interrelationships between various traditions and perspectives, uh, which is, of course, also something we can apply to the question of the archive, mm -hmm. Emmanuel yeah. discusses, now that we are not having a standardized notion of archive. The archive not as a synthesis, but the archive, uh, in this sense, uh, you know, as an interrelationship between various traditions and perspectives. Also, it would not illustrate previously established findings, but function as an active laboratory, as a journey into the unknown. To quote Lisson again, it's not a recapitulation of something which existed in obvious ways, it's the quest for something we don't know yet. And so unfortunately, this museum of Glissant, you know, was never realized. So with many of the artist friends of Edouard, some of them are still alive, like for example, Etel Adnan, whose Leporello you see here, Etel met, you know, Edouard in, in the 60s, and then a much younger artist you see in the background, Walter Price, who is in his uh, uh, 20s, you know, who is inspired by, by, um, uh, by Glissant today. We made this transgenerational project, you know, inhabiting the villa. It's a, a villa in Brussels and kind of transforming this villa into a house museum, which sort of would house temporarily Edouard Glissant's imagined institution. Here you have Steve McQueen's contribution to the show. Or, of course, very important here, the dialogue between Daniel Boyd, who made portraits of Glissant, and on the left-hand side, Mantia Diawara, the amazing you know, filmmaker and director Mantia Diawara, uh, who was in dialogue at the Serpentine with uh, Sarah Morrison me the other day about his uh, opera. Uh, he developed his opera film, he developed for, for Documenta. Uh, Mantia, of course, was very, very close friends with Edouard Glissant. And it's actually interesting that Glissant told him that it's urgent that he meets me, and he told me that it's urgent. So it was Glissant kind of, you know, connected us, and this exhibition has a lot to do with that dialogue, also with Mantia. And his film was very much, you know, in a way, uh, accompanying the show from the get-go. Here you have uh, Valerio Adami, another you know, artist uh, Glissant was friends with, uh, an artist who always brought literature, po poetry, uh, and art together, who is now in his late 80s. Uh, or the Rax Media Collective, who you know, uh, more recently were inspired by, by Glissant. So it really just showed, and here, of course, the artists who originally wanted to contribute to actually um, to Glissant's museum. On the left-hand side, you have uh, Wilfredo Lam, who was a very close friend of Glissant and the founding kind of member of this museum. On the right-hand side, Antonio Segui, who is still alive, who is in his 80s, who again, you know, was very supportive of this idea. So it was driven, it was an artist-driven, you know, institution. Here you have the vitrines with all the books, the collaborations, you know, Raul Cardenas and many artists with whom, you know, Glissant collaborated here more of, you know, Itales de Porello and another very transgenerational dialogue that uh, in a way we see here with Walter Price, another painting by him, and then Simon Fatal, the, the sculptor, artist, and publisher 
who again, you know, was very, very connected to that whole scene. Uh, well, at the time, you know, poetry, art, literature, music were all very closely together. Um, here, the video on the right-hand side of, of, uh, of Edouard Sylvie Glissant, who talked about the archive. And the whole idea was actually to bring the archive, you know, to life. So we, because it's always very difficult when you show an archive, I mean, it is amazing how Emmanuel brings archives to life through Instagram, also through the combination of text and, you know, and images. But of course, within an exhibition, it is very often very difficult when you just, you know, produce or present documents in a vitrine. It does not necessarily produce an exhibition, which is an experience. And for this very reason, we, we used a lot the voice of, uh, of Edouard Glissant, because I've been recording him, I've got probably about... Uh, 30 or 40 hours of, of recording because we traveled with him to many, many cities together and did talks, and I would each time record. And so together with Ranjana Leindecker, the choreographer, we, we picked a lot of fragments of the sound, and whenever you enter the space, you activated Edouard Glissant's voice, you know, who kind of followed you. So the idea was to, to kind of develop a choreography. And that's a similar thing in terms of archive, which we tried to do with an exhibition I curated for the Swiss Pavilion at the Architecture Biennial in Venice. It looked again at the, at the utopic, you know, art institution which was not built. In this case, it was the Fan Palace of Cedric Price, an ultimately, you know, interdisciplinary art institution which wanted to bring together all, all disciplines. And in a way, I was kind of, you know, interested in this notion of, of, um, of, of, of utopia, but of course, you know, uh, also to problemize utopia. And again, Glissant gives us the answer because he referred to his utopia as a quivering or trembling notion, no? It must be said, he told me from the start, that trembling is not uncertainty and is not fear. Trembling thought, or in my opinion, every utopia passes through this kind of thought, is first of all the instinctive feeling that we must reject all categories of fixed thought and all categories of imperial thought. And that's very much what Cedric Price wanted with this, you know, Fan Palace. It was an institution which would reject any kind of fixed thought or imperial thought. The all world, says Clisson, trembles. The all world trembles physically, geologically, mentally, spiritually, because the all world is looking for the point, not the station, but the utopian point where all the world's cultures, all the world's imaginations can meet and hear one another without dispersing or losing themselves. And that, I think, is utopia. Utopia is a reality where one can meet with the other without losing himself or herself. And that's, in a way, you know, this unrealized institution here. So we transformed with many different artists. The title came from Dominique Gonzalez first, with the Neon, and Liam Gillick, who did the, uh, you know, the letters. We, we transformed the, the pavilion, uh, Atelier Bauau, created a kind of a, uh, I mean, for those of you who haven't been in the London Zoo, there is one of the very few built works by Cedric Price. He built the aviary, and it's a kind of a metaphor for him what an institution should be, because he wanted actually the aviary to be mobile. So if the birds wanted to fly out of the zoo, you know, it could basically, and that's what Bauau did here, you know, the aviary was not even covered, so that actually the birds inhabited the, the tree. And of course, as Etel Adnan says, you know, every day where we don't see a tree is a wasted day. And the pavilion, you know, with different artists, we did a choreography, again, with Asad Raza and, you know, Tino Segal and many different artists, Philippe Pareno, to basically create the space as a, as a permanently changing, um, as a permanently changing context where you could experience the archive differently. And you had all the documents of Cedric Price on these, on these trolleys, on these, uh, I don't know how you call these, these, you know, little trolleys on wheels. And, um, and they were wheeled out. 
Um, and that was an idea of the architect Herzog de Meuron. And Tino Segal kind of choreographed this, you know, this situation. That means when no one was in the space, the space was empty. And then when you enter the space, a first trolley came. When more visitors came, more trolley came. And we had 60 PhD students who, who make theses on, you know, from Pallas, on Cedric Price, also on Lucius Burkhardt, which was another, you know, archive we celebrated here. Uh, and they wrote their thesis whilst they were there, so it was a laboratory, as Glisson describes. And then every day, you know, they would have a conversation with the visitor. So you, they would engage you as the visitor, should you want, explain the documents, but not only explain, also listen to the reaction of all the visitors. And, you know, it became a whole kind of conversation. And then in the evening, when the last visitor had left, the space was again empty. So these trolleys were kind of, you know, like a mobile device. Here you see the archive, you know, where all the documents came from. All of a sudden, the space went dark. You had a screening. About 15 artists made interventions. You could suddenly see films, you know, that Cedric would talk. Again, similarly to Glissant, we would bring the voice back. It's very important to kind of all of a sudden make the archive alive through, you know, bringing the voice, bringing the sound. Ah, yeah, here we could maybe see a little film. I think it's somehow a film. So the choreography, you know, continued whilst the film was projected and created all these layers. So it's an attempt, you know, in presenting an archive in a, in a more dynamic way and making it into an experience and particularly also creating a situation of laboratory and learning for everybody involved. And particularly, most importantly, learning for the curator because I think it's important that we start from this position that, you know, the curator is always learning, that it's not a kind of an imposed knowledge, you know, it's the country, it's, it's an exchange. And then last but not least, the Instagram uh, is another form of archive. I had kind of huge uh, difficulties to think what I could do with social media at the beginning, and I felt very uncomfortable and sort of excluded all the things. I knew I wouldn't want to do selfies. I also <laughs> knew I wouldn't want to, you know, document my trips, and I you know, knew that I certainly didn't want to document, didn't want to photograph my food. Um, <laughs> and so all of these things were kind of like, you know, eliminated. And, uh, all of a sudden, I thought, actually, it should be something urgent. You know, I should not, it should be, because I suddenly felt it's kind of really, really a problem with, with uh, uh, a lot of these projects that it has to do with, with vanity, you know, so I wanted to have, be the opposite. I had nothing to, it was a curatorial project as a, as a, as a movement, right? So to do, that it was useful, that it was a contribution. And I realized that handwriting was somehow disappearing. It's conversations I had with Itella Nan, you know, the poet. Uh, conversation I had with the late Umberto Eco, it's very worried that, you know, teenagers would no longer handwrite. And he said we should send kids to calligraphy classes. And I thought that's probably, you know, unlikely that that would happen. So I thought, you know, more likely would be that we start to celebrate handwriting where it was not supposed to be celebrated on, you know, on a, on a photographic social media yeah. platform to kind of almost like undermine what actually initially this platform was made for. So I spoke to Gustav Metzger, the late Gustav Metzger, and he developed a kind of an extinction handwriting because he says if we talk about climate change, no one will ever wake up. You know, we need to sort of basically use this vocabulary of extinction. And then, uh, you know, started to, whenever I meet an artist, an architect, a novelist, a poet, because I have, that's what I do every day, uh, then, you know, and I would sort of ask them to write something on a piece of paper, and it became this endless, you know, it's almost like a, a, an endless archive of, of thousands and thousands of such, such notes. And of course, Pedro Cole, I took this out of the archive of my post, it's particularly for Emmanuel, because when we were 
looking at uh, your amazing, amazing Instagram, I was asking you, you know, if you were inspired by Deitra, and you said that it was a f not only an inspiration, but also a great friend. So I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> um, I mean, so Tejuko's re most recent book is Blind Spot. Um, and I think for about a year or so um, before the book came out, he had started putting up his photographs um, on, on Instagram, but also writing this sort of text that um, didn't really have anything, you know, if you were thinking in that way to do with the images. Um, and so that kind of opened up because, you know, he had, I remember he had always been hesitant about Instagram as a medium. So it was the same question, for instance, that you were asking, how can I go to Instagram without necessarily, um, basically to subvert the whole impulse to, to promote myself, right? But also present work that leads to further work. So how can Instagram become this platform that can allow me to kind of pitch forward, right? And merely, you know, going in this circle of um, celebratory, this celebratory circle. Um, of what I am and what I'm doing and how, who I'm meeting and how I'm seeing the world. But how do you use Instagram um, for him as some, some kind of um, prompt for new work? Mm -hmm. So um, the recent book, I, as far as I know, maybe I'm wrong, was developed um, kind of through Instagram. So because Instagram has this, you know, this, this incredible format that you could present image and text side by side um, and each holding its own weight. So you don't necessarily have that same kind of um, situation on Twitter, for instance, or Facebook, right? But Instagram sort of is a slower, um, I guess, um, platform. And we are both doing the same. We are kind of using Instagram to do a book, right? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely. the same for you. Yeah, it's um, very similar. It's, um, it's, you know, so if you're, if you're a writer, one of the, the biggest problems, especially if you're some, in, in some way um, moving around to, to sustain your life and make your life happen, you know, you face the additional challenge, especially if you live in New York, for instance, or London, <laughs> of finding this sort of like sacred spaces um, to walk and to make work. Um, and so how do you wake up each day and say, well, there's this photo I've been thinking about and I can write 100 words today, you know? Um, and that, you know, in a week you have 700 words and, you know, it kind of builds up in that way. And a book is formed out of that. Um, um, and so for me, it was almost like seeing the work that he had done um, and how more or less Instagram liberated him, you know? Um, um, how could I also make work, especially because I wasn't a photographer, right? Um, you, know, I, you know, I wasn't putting up my own photos on Instagram. I was thinking through mm -hmm. um, archival material. And so what you showed us today is also a book in progress. Yeah. yeah. How far along it is, I don't, I can't answer that. But. <laughs> it's the same for me. I have no idea when the book will happen. <laughs> now, another uh, one I chose specially for you is the, the sentence, John Berger. And of course, you know, my Instagram kind of started also, I mean, it started with the kind of feeling of a necessity of, you know, bringing handwriting back. But it had also to do with the beauty I just found very often when someone would sign a book, you know, and you'd have a sentence written in the book. And actually, the John Berger sentence was written into the book. Here is where we met. Here is where we meet. Uh, and he wrote that, of course, before. It was in 2012. It was a couple of years before I started my Instagram. But then we posted it, you know, on the occasion, basically. And he very sadly passed away earlier this year in his, in his memory. It's a wonderful sentence uh, about the things uh, known and unknown that we share 
in solidarity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, of course, John Berger, or our passion for John Berger is something yeah. we definitely share. And we had John Berger at the, the Serpentine Memory Marathon, which is uh, a marathon, because we have every year this knowledge festival. Yesterday, we had it in City Hall with about the guests, the host, the ghost, and the, and the machine. Uh, and it's every year a theme from all different disciplines. And mm -hmm. the year when John Berger came, the theme was memory. So it's very topical for you know, today's conversation. Uh, and it was a collaboration. It was the last collaboration we had with the late Eric Hobsbawm, the, the historian, um, and a very good friend of, uh, of John Berger's. And uh, we were listening together again at this talk John Berger gave. You can see it online. It's, a, it's an amazing talk. It's a, I mean, I was basically in conversation with him, but then he suddenly started to do a bit like you, he made a beautiful <laughs> reading. Yeah. Uh, and that's always nice, knowing in a, in a sort of a format you suddenly shift gear, you shift format. Mm -hmm. uh, and he started to read a text where he basically talked about Croydon, and he, because he you know, has memories of being with his mother in Croydon, and it was the moment when uh, uh, the, um, uh, his mother had passed away, and he wanted to just explain to his mother what happened in Croydon today. And it's a very, very moving text, and he talks a lot about archive there, and he talks also about space for the reader. He talks about this idea that there is an impulse for the archive, but we must always think about it. And that's something which is very relevant for you. I was thinking about it also in relation to your novel. Yeah. I've got the, the, the Nigerian version here yeah. of your novel. There are two versions. There's an American version and a Nigerian version. Farad, and you said here again, it's like in all your work, very important, the space for the reader. So I thought it would be nice if you tell us a little bit about what John Berger means for you mm. and, and that idea of the space for the reader. Yeah, um, I think, you know, most people know about John Berger through um, ways of seeing, right? And, this, yeah. you know, it was this big book in, um, I guess, cultural criticism, how do we, you know, write about art and think about art, classical art particularly. But um, it was actually not... It was one of those one-off projects for him in the way he always talked about it. He never really talked about it as like one pivotal, I guess, um, book. Uh, but then, you know, there's the John Berger that won the, the, the Booker in, in, I think, 76, and almost immediately after that left for, um, left for the French Alps and left for this rural village in, in um, I think, the border between Switzerland and France or so. Um, and you could actually see how his writing opened up after that moment. And he really began to, in my thinking, and the way I actually approach his work and how he has been an influence in mine, you know, this, this strange, you know, um, combination of narrative and criticism, right? So where every time you're reading John Berger, you're thinking, but you're also feeling. Um, and so the idea is that philosophy never really enters into us, or, you know, art history never really enters into us if it doesn't enter with feeling, mm. right? Um, and so um, that's really how to, you know, making space for the reader, where you're telling a story, but you're also um, kind of meditating on all of these um, images that, um, that, in a sense, has been mystified or um, obscured by, um, by the kind of critical writing that has been written on them. So how do you, for instance, write about archival images when most of what has been written about archival images exists in a certain kind of format, like scholarly format, right? Where, you know, the denigration, you know, is talked about in a very, um, almost like, you know, opaque manner. I mean, I know opacity is important to Clitzer, but in the sense that you never really feel yourself when you're reading that. But in responding to the archive for me, um, especially looking at using the images that I've used, 
what I'm always thinking about is how do I find myself in these images, right? Um, how does the identity that I, I, you know, the identities of the people who have been pictured in this kind of way, um, how, is, how is my own identity implicated in theirs? How do we share kind of kinship? And I think that John Berger's work is really some kind of Lord star because um, what he's bought, especially now that he's dead, one can then look at um, his body of work. What he kept insisting on is the possibility that one can, I feel, find a body in any um, philosophical idea. So for those of you who haven't seen it, you can see this uh, conversation of the Memory Marathon yeah. online. And thinking about you know, sharing kinship and also the idea of you know, things uh, that we share. Um, I asked you the other day to tell me, besides Tejo Cole and John Barsha, <laughs> some other inspiration. We had a conversation on Boris Oyinka, and mm -hmm. that's another archive conversation, because there's just this exhibition happening at Harvard of, yeah. of the collection. Could you talk a little bit about that oh, yeah. and how, how he inspires you? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in <laughs> Shoenka is a very interesting um, figure in Nigerian literature. You know, he was the first um, African to win the Nobel Prize, and there's a sense in which <laughs> Shoenka has sort of been thought about, like people have sort of felt that he's this old figure who we are just, people are waiting for his death in a sense so that we could look at all the work that he's done. But, you know, he's a very important thinker in, especially in thinking about the relationship between, um, you know, two civilizations. So you had, you know, in his, in his book, um, um, Death and the King's Horseman, for instance, <coughs> or, um, Lion and the Jewel. So all these plays that he wrote and the first um, criticism that he would get or the first response that critics would give to his work is, oh, this is about the clash of civilization. Um, and Shoenka was always, um, you know, annoyed by that kind of response. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in the preface to um, Death and the King's Horseman, one of the, I think the 1975 issue, he said something like, you know, don't give me that response anymore. Like, what I'm thinking about is the idea of transition, right? So I'm no longer thinking about merely that, um, you know, there was a colonial, there was this moment in Nigerian history where um, our past was, you know, our, our future was really disrupted, but I'm thinking about the transition between times, right? So I'm thinking about how do you move from three stages, right? The three stages of time, past, present, future. And I'm really interested in the idea of transitions, right? Um, so my, my sense have always been, how do you think about transition rather than merely one sense of time? Um, and, and, and then in the exhibition in Harvard, for instance, which Awam Ampa is curating, who was a former student of Shoenka, actually, um, and God help me, I'm, I'm supposed to put together the catalog. Um, um, so that's the collection. That's the collection. it's another archive theme. It's, it's a collection. It's an art collection. And um, Shoenka has been collecting art for several, um, I mean, decades at this point. Um, and when you look at his collection, it's not, the impulse is not ethnographic. Um, so he collects from all kinds of places. Um, it's not a question of, trying to say, oh, these are all the figures you need to look at if you want to understand Yoruba culture, for instance. He collects from all parts of Nigeria, all parts of Africa, you know. Um, he collects figures from, um, from the Yoruba, from the Efik, um, from the Igbo, and you have this eclectic, eclectic collection that allows you to actually get a sense of how Shoinka is thinking about time, right? So he's not thinking merely in the sense of, oh, this is an object that represents a certain kind of 
history, a certain kind of past, but he's looking at more what does this represent aesthetically. But also that aesthetics is never divorced from, um, say, um, spirituality. Um, or for instance, how does the far, you know, um, traditional um, religion become something more than just, um, it becomes a moral compass, a moral philosophy, rather than merely this is something that's restricted to a certain group of people. And it's interesting because another writer we discussed um, in the conversation was Lazar Drandic. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, uh, the, the book Trieste is uh, an incredible book because it's a, yeah, one can say it's a historic documentary, but it's also fiction. Yeah. And I think that is another thing which is very relevant in your work. I mean, it's already in Farah, but it's even going to be more present, I think, in your new book, mm -hmm. that you basically do, do both at the same time. You, you do historical documentary and fiction. Could you talk a little bit about this? I mean, uh, uh, it's, of course, something which happened also a lot in, in, in cinema, but you mm -hmm. do it through, through books. And uh, I just started to read uh, the, the most recent book of Dasha mm -hmm. Dundrich called, called Benadonna. I was yeah. curious. What inspires you about this work? Yeah, I'll come. I'll ask you a question after this. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, you know, they are the great um, writers who like Sabaud, um, for instance, or Anand Dasadrindic, um, who um, sort of use historical material to as a kind of prompt to invigorate their fiction. Um, and what you get, particularly in Dasadrindic, and I think it's it's not really the, the, the case in Sabaud, is this sense that um, you can't be detached, you know? Um, there's a kind of clinical precision when you're reading Sabaud where he's sort of like almost um, looking from the outside. And in a very, I mean, of course, in a compelling manner. Um, but the Sadrinjik is always thinking about like a family's relationship to this historical um, material. Um, and so that becomes even more important for me because you know the question of history is never really resolved um, as events, you know. So if you were thinking of history, say, as just something that happened, you always kind of meet this roadblock, which is like, okay, so it happened. How does it matter for me, right? Um, and one of the conversations I was having earlier this year, you know, where with these Nigerians who would say, forget the past, you know, let's move forward, right? And that's particularly because, you know. You know, you could think of history as an event, as something that happened in the past that had no bearing um, for your own life, right? Um, so I always felt, you know, and reading just Dasadrindic, that there was this sense that she, just like, you can't escape the sense that you're implicated in history. So history is no longer an event. It's a form of, it's actually consciousness. Um, it's really how, as Glisson said, um, I'm in history until my barest marrows. Um, yeah. Okay, so the question for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I want, I want you to really talk about, I mean, there's something Blissot um, um, says about, um, you know, the idea of multiplying the worlds within museums. Mm -hmm. um, I think that was in conversation with, um, I can't remember who, who he it was. It was here, yeah. It was in this book. Um, yeah. This is actually the catalog for the show. Um, and I'm, I'm really interested in how that has sort of guided your practice, working in a very prominent you know, gallery and uh, you know, having the, the, the kind of, um, um, having a kind of ambitiousness, but also having the audacity to do anything you really want to do. So how have you been thinking about um, the museum, not merely as one world, but the idea of multiplying these worlds within um, a given space? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting because initially, you know, the inspiration came a lot with uh, the idea of exhibitions kind of being learning and, and uh -huh. you know, the idea, because I was very, I felt very strange about this idea that we would do shows and then they tour the world and, you know, you just send, you put an exhibition in crates and send it to the next city and that seemed like wrong. And so Glisson kind of taught me that we should come up with models of exhibitions uh -huh. which could, you know, travel whilst they travel, learn, and, you know, become more complex and always also learn from the local context. So, mm -hmm. so I would say, you know, that idea that we also go... The archipelago, I think, was the, was the key model because, of course, when we think about, you know, big exhibitions uh, or big institutions, very often they are, as Glisson said, you know, homogenized. Yeah, they exactly. are... It's the logic of the continent. You know, the continent is not welcoming, it's not sheltering, it's kind of, you know, homogenized. Um, and so he encouraged his idea also that we go out of the walls of, you know, a museum and start to kind of build an archipelago, you know, in, in the city and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and so on. And I think that was, um, that was a very big inspiration uh, and still is. I think also um, the idea that... Um, I mean, maybe for example, did the exhibition just right now this summer with Arthur Jaffa. You know, Arthur Jaffa said, um, and that was actually not the, the group show as an archipelago, but the solo show as an archipelago, you know, because you can apply that also to, to a solo exhibition because you can start to think, you know, that it's no longer a monographic show. So Arthur Jaffa said he wants to be the usher to other practices, you know, a little bit like when, I don't know, Kanye West does an album and leads us to Chance the Rapper. That's mm -hmm. kind of... Mm -hmm. yeah, brings us to, that's what Arthur Jaffa said as an example. So all of a sudden in the exhibition you'd had, you know, uh, several artists whom we would only know from YouTube or we would only know from Instagram, Frida Urpapu, who is this amazing um, artist photographer from Norway, mm -hmm. whom no one has ever seen in the museum. People have just seen her work in, on Instagram. You know, suddenly Arthur Jaffa brought it to the museum uh, and so he created a situation of exhibitions within the exhibition, you know. So the solo show became a kind of an archipelago. And I think that idea, I mean, it is just by reading every morning, you know, 15 minutes of Eduard Lissa, it's just always, I always think about this concept. And so mm. it, it, it enters really uh, the, daily, the daily practice mm. in a way. And um, I think the other thing which, which is important at a certain moment, I also start to think when I do bigger shows, you know, uh, like Biennales or... Triennales, or you know, sometimes I'm invited to do such kind of big international shows. Then I kind of start to think how one could actually bring in several kind of curatorial voices into the exhibition. How all of a sudden you no longer have like one curator curating the whole thing, but you know, you basically have an archipelago of exhibition, and you kind of coordinate this archipelago mm -hmm. of exhibition. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, you know, very concrete example we have this year. For those of you who haven't seen it yet, we have the Francis Carey Pavilion in front of the Serpentine, you know, and the Serpentine Pavilion is such an example. We build, you know, it makes the institution more an archipelago because we build this pavilion every summer into the park. And, you know, last year uh, uh, I came back from a trip, like, super early, like 6 or 7 a.m., and taxi driver dropped me, you know, in, in Kensington Gardens, and I went directly to the office. So obviously the driver must have assumed I would not be a visitor because no one would go to the museum at 7 a.m., so he said, you know, he always wanted to talk to someone from the Serpentine. I said, yes, yes, yes. You know, I wanted to hear his story because he wanted to tell me the story. And he said that he came last year with his daughter to the park. You know, they went on a walk on a Sunday 
And all of a sudden, he started running to the pavilion because you know the pavilion is not in the institution; it's it's in the park. It's 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 when you go on a walk, you just stumble upon it. And uh, he said he would never go to a museum. I said why? He said because I said it's free admission, and that I mean that's anyway the minimum free admission because if we don't have free admission, we prolongate you know inequality. I deeply believe that museums have to have you know free admission. But in this archipelago idea, you all of a sudden can actually go outside the institution to create an experience. For people, so he said. Suddenly, his daughter ran into the into the pavilion, and he said he just would never have had this idea, and because he just doesn't believe that museums are for people like him, you know. So it's a kind of barrier. But because the pavilion is in the park, the daughter ran into the and the reason he wanted to tell me the story is that he wanted to thank someone from the Sovereign because he said, you know, his daughter now talks about nothing else but architecture, reads books about it every day, and he's totally convinced she's going to become an architect. So you know, that's an example yeah, why yeah. we need welcoming, sheltering structures mm, mm. and in a Glissantian way, and not, you know, homogenizing continents. Absolutely. In that sense. I mean, it's also um, the question of how you make distinctions, not hierarchies, right? Mm. Um, and so um, for a platform like Instagram, which I want us to go back to, um, because it's, it's kind of like a cheat code <laughs> to talk about this idea of, um, you know, just like creating... Um, less homogeneous um, um, structure. So how do you, as a curator, walk on Instagram in a way that you know that the people who are coming to Instagram are not coming to see these handwritings, you know? They are probably coming to just check up on um, what's cool, what's um, fad, um, you know? They are kind of um, coming to check up on what's fascinating or what's just like mm. pleasurable to the eye. And then you kind of insert. And I remember you saying that um, when I started this project, I didn't even think people would like it. And now there are tens of thousands of people um, who are sort of following this kind of um, um, this this incredible thing you're doing on Instagram. So, what is the what is the way in which one? And you've already spoken about it, but I want you to elaborate this idea of not making this um, not making hierarchies, but making distinctions. Yeah, I think in a way, also, I mean, we can look at a few more examples from the Instagram. Andrew O'Hagan, the novelist, I mean, very often, you know, if a cause addresses directly the, the reader, I mean, talking about that, as you did so beautifully, Make America Mexico Again, it's the poet Eileen Miles, who run, actually, she ran a presidential campaign. Yeah. I did a whole research on, you know, artists running for president, because of course um, Eileen ran this campaign and we, now Tania Bruguera, the artist, runs for president of Cuba to replace Raul Castro in 2018. You know, sometimes it leads to doodling also. We go from handwriting into doodling. I mean, the thing is also that it's not, uh, and that is the, one of the very first ones. It's actually before I had Instagram. Uh, I was with Eric Hobsbawm, the historian, and he wrote, I belong to a profession whose business is to protest against forgetting, but which also knows that memory is complex and sometimes dangerous. And then, you know, to let basically the project evolve and differentiate. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and of course, also, you know, in a way, it's always a conversation where, because I initially just ask the artists and write, you know, novelists and poets and architects to write the sentence. But of course, a lot of them then, you know, uh, so I give a kind of a, a rule of the game. Yeah. But then the wonderful thing is that very often, you know, people change that rule of the game. So then all of a sudden, some, some, some of the writers or artists said, you know, we'd rather do a doodle, because actually doodling is also endangered. We need to kind of bring doodling back. And then, 
you know, at a certain moment, we had, um, we were with Ben Vickers, uh, and, you know, Ben said, the Surrealists had this tradition of the exquisite cops. Why is it always only one person? Why can't we not revive the exquisite cops where we fold a piece of paper in three or four parts and then someone starts, draws or writes something, then the next person does it. So now there is a whole series of exquisite cops, you know, mm -hmm. within the project that's sort of like an Instagram within the Instagram. So it yeah. develops, yeah. hopefully, into an archipelago, Absolutely. you know, over time. Or Genesis Briar P. Orich, you know, said that that's, of course... Uh, an invention of a new form of handwriting, you know? So the idea also, a little bit like Gustav Metzger invented the extinction handwriting, you can say. And then, of course, there's a whole uh, string, one can say, a whole series also of posts which have to do with activism, like Paul Chan, um, that would be that, you know, Gerhard Richter art is the highest form of hope, really almost like a statement in a way, or the cruelest lies reside in silence by Daniel Boyd. And then I have several artists, and that also made it, in a way, more, you know, much more differentiated and less into a, into a block, you know, just of handwritten sentences. Because I said, moment, you know, quite a lot of artists kind of resist Instagram, mm -hmm. as we have at the beginning, you yeah. know, you have, and uh, Tejo has, and I have. And then at a certain moment, we found our own way around it. But some artists still resist it. Yeah. And they basically then find it amusing that they become almost like the artists in residence in my Instagram. So they are not on Instagram, but they are. So like Anrisala, for example, almost every week draws a clock. So we've got a whole series. That's an exhibition within the exhibition, the clocks, you know, of Anrisala. So it becomes, and that's, you know, if you think about, it's only been going on for three years, and we already have five or six or seven projects within the project. Mm -hmm. And we will see how it further, you know, uh, evolves. Yeah, and that's the motto, no? Yeah. That there should be no end to experimentation. And I wanted to kind of end the PowerPoint presentation on Etel Adnan, who, besides Eduard Lisson, has been my greatest inspiration in my life. And she um, is this amazing poet and writer and painter and activist, urbanist uh, from Beirut, who has lived between Sosalito, Paris, and Beirut, uh, and is now, over the last couple of years, mostly based in Paris. Um, and she uh, has done dozens and dozens of post-it notes. So it's almost like that. So, you know, also in terms of books, I actually think my Instagram is not one book. You know, we could just do a book of Henri Sala's clocks, which mm -hmm. we're going to do. We could just do a book of all the sentences Etel has written, which would be a, a beautiful book of the greatest quotes of Etel Annan. You know, we could do a book of statements just chosen, so that could be the different handwritten sentences. We, we will do a book of all the exquisite carbs. Mm -hmm. So I think there are probably already about five or six different books, you know, within the, the, the Instagram. And I always thought that this sentence is kind of like, it's almost like in a Glissantian way, when Glissant is a toolbox for me, this sentence is such a motto of what, you know, exhibitions uh, could do in the 21st century. And, uh, uh, yeah, and that actually led me to a question I forgot to ask you before. <laughs> because, you know, I've, I think you've we're been, running out of time. No, but I, we, have, yeah. I, we have time for one more question. Yeah. Uh, it's because yeah. I, I was thinking, oh. you know, because <laughs> we are talking about archives and our yeah. Instagrams, and then I was talking about my exhibitions, and you were talking about your 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 your, your future book. Yeah. And and I was kind of wondering if you've ever thought of curating an exhibition uh, because yeah. you were talking about Vole Zodrinka and his exhibition, and you doing the book. But yeah. do you have ideas or a desire to go into this medium of the exhibition with your notion of the archive? Um, there's a sense in which I'm already working on Instagram is a curatorial. <laughs> Um, comes out of a curatorial impulse, right? So how do you present these images 
that are not taking, I mean, mostly the curators never make the ads, you know, they present the ads, you know, yeah. they take care of the, in a sense, the soul of the ads. Um, and so to put those images on Instagram is already a curatorial impulse. Um, I'm kind of evading that question because um, I've always felt that um, first and foremost, I wanted to be the guy behind, um, you know, who looks at the images, right? And not necessarily the guy who does the logistics to present the, you know, the art. Um, and I, I'm still trying to resolve um, my relationship with, um, with curating as a powerful, um, you know, like the idea of power in relation to being a curator, right? So what does it mean to have that kind of power to decide who is shown? Right. Um, of course, there's a sense in which you know writing about art is already an expression of um, my own sort of um, power in that sense. I mean, I remember the very first time I was asked, given a carte blanche, and said, "Write about anybody you want." And that was the moment where I realized, okay, I have I actually have some power to say this is the person I want to write about. Um, so I'm still resolving that, and I think that. Um, Somehow, you know, an exhibition come out of that, but I don't know in what institution, in what kind of, um, you know, what kind of format it would be. Because ordinarily, I think there's a way in which Nigerian artists can respond to the archive in ways that I don't think um, there has been a really significant exhibition of, um, you know, um, art that is responding to archival images from Nigeria. It could not be a better conclusion. <laughs> Do we have yeah. questions? Or? Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Great. There's a question here. Hello. Um, I thought of what you said about Instagram and. Um, I agree with you, handwriting is so important. But Instagram, um, you know you can display three things on one line. So I thought maybe in the middle you'd have, I'm just suggesting you don't have to take it. Um, in the middle, you have the handwriting. On one side, you have um, the handwriting that's indigenous to where the artist is from, if there is such a thing. So assuming it's a Nigerian uh, um, novelist or someone you're featuring. On the other side, you'd have probably a local handwriting. And then on the other side of it, you would have um, artwork depicting where the artist is from. So you're able to capture an audience that's um, a vast amount. Some people may just see the handwriting and you know go over. But if you have three images, at least one will be able to um, address a certain demographic Okay, thank you. Well, thank you for this, uh, for this remark. And it's actually something I have started to think about because obviously, you know, it's not only that, uh, that our Instagrams evolve, but it's also, you know, the possibilities of how to use it evolve. So at the beginning, there wasn't the possibility to have diptychs and triptychs. Yeah. And also there wasn't the possibility to have film. Um, and what I've started to do, but your suggestion is interesting, but what I've started to do is actually, I've started to do these diptychs and triptychs. So very often I would actually film the, you know, the writing process. So we'd have a still image of the final result, and then we would see how the writing happens as a little film, and then often a portrait you know, of the artist. Or as you can see, you know, we had the portrait here of, uh, where was it, of Etel. If you can go one back. Uh, so I'd often have a portrait, you know, I would make a photograph of the, uh, of the artist, and, and uh, 
so, you know, I'll be starting to use that, definitely, yeah. And also, one thing I forgot to say about Etel is actually that the reason also I wanted to end on her is that it was very essential for the concrete trigger, because it was always on my mind to do something about handwriting. And then we worked in Bretagne uh, with, you know, Kouchonga, Simon Fatal, Etel and me. We were, like, having a walk, and it started to rain. So then we went... Uh, to find, you know, um, protection against the rain in a in a cafe, and it just would not stop rain because in Bretagne in December it keeps raining and raining <laughs> for hours, you know. And so after a long conversation, at a certain moment, you know, we all went on our iPhones and started to, you know, answer. But Etel wouldn't do that, of course. Etel would take, you know, a piece of paper and would start to handwrite the poem. And I just thought that's the moment I realized. I just took a photo posted it, and that's kind of when my Instagram response. So she was the concrete trigger, uh -huh. in a way. But we had one more question, I think. I've got a question for Emmanuel. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, 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 I should tell you, I totally just was so taken by your reading and the poetry and the theatricality in it. Now I'm thinking, at what stage in your process do you work with the image or the actual inspiration? Because you, it, it's, it's a sort of character building. There's a sort of setting going on. And I'm thinking about this. It's really going into theater, theatricality. What's that for you? Do you want to make a film? Um, of, no. <laughs> I, I already see the performance. Uh, yeah. Um, so that's a very interesting question because it's not necessarily um, thinking that the image is a direct you know, illustration of the text, right? It's always that you start with... You know, for in my, in my case, I'd been looking at these archival images for years. I'd been sort of for four years, you know, always knowing they are there in my spare time, you know, just looking at these images. And then, after, especially, you know, the point where I gave the stock where these two women came to me and, you know, as I read, and suddenly occurred to me that there was an image in the archive that sort of responded to that moment. So sometimes it's really an experience that um, you know, evokes um, you know, a memory of looking at a certain image, and sometimes it's the other way around. Um, um, it's never really, for me, an, an attempt to do a direct illustration of you know, either to say the captions, this is exactly what's happening in the image. Otherwise, it, it completely um, undoes um, the idea of actually just creating some richness out of um, the archive, right? So. Um, for me, it's always a tough negotiation between what image um, evokes a sense, the sense of the story, or what story evokes a sense of um, that image. Um, and sometimes it's really that after I write a text, I just look at you know, the images I have and um, sort of find a response to that text. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it's my question. I read bought a few copies of it, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. OK. Thank you.